into. Here's his summary. Would you begin reading with me in verse 12? Now, uh, when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali, uh, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew, his brother, uh, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Would you pray with me? Uh, oh, Lord, as we just right now turn our attention to your word in this summary of Jesus' ministry, Lord, we pray that you would reveal to us by the power of your spirit what you've got stored up for us in it. Lord, uh, help us as we think our way through this text and consider how it applies to our life. Would you, by the power of your spirit, be at work applying it to our lives that we might be more conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so as we begin our consideration of what we're about to get into. Matthew begins at this morning with a consideration of Jesus' place. Where is he at? He's about to begin his Galilean ministry. So as we consider this, like this place is going to define what's about to happen from right here, starting right here, chapter 5 in particular. And it's going to take us through about the middle of the way of chapter 16. So lots of ministry is about to happen in this phase. So as we consider that phase, where is he at? Where's his place? Verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. So that he hears clearly Jesus when Jesus heard that John had been arrested. John here is our friend John the Baptist. We've met John the Baptist, interacted with John the Baptist several times in Matthew already. But John the Baptist has now gotten arrested, and we, at this point in time, haven't been told why, but we're going to be told why. We'll see that in a while when we get to chapter 14. But essentially, uh, John has been uh, arrested for being willing to speak out against Herod Antipas for taking a wife he shouldn't have taken. So Herod Antipas, this particular Herod is not the Herod that we met in chapter 1. That Herod's off the scene. That was Herod the Great. This is Herod Antipas. Uh, Herod Antipas sometimes is called Herod the Tetrarch. The reason Herod has this kind of suffix to his name is so we know which one he is. Because after Herod the Great dies, the Romans kind of catch on to the fact, you know, uh, I'm not sure that any of Herod's sons are really as great as Herod the Great was. So since they're not quite so great as Herod the Great, maybe we should subdivide his region, subdivide his kingdom, and see if together they can collectively govern it. And so that's what they do. And so Herod Antipas is entrusted with a small portion of Herod the Great's territory. He's supposed to run this. His brothers run other parts of it. Well, uh, John the Baptist ends up getting in hot water because this particular Herod, he decides that he has a thing for one of the other Herod's wives, which would, of course, be his brother. 
He acts on that thing and takes his brother Philip's wife. And in all the region, you're never going to guess who had the nerve to stand up and say something about it. The guy who was out in the woods, dressed in the camel's hair, with the leather belt on, who ate the wild locusts and the honey, he had the nerve to say, hey, Herod, it's pretty messed up, dude. You shouldn't do that. And Herod didn't like that because Herod's a sinner. So Herod didn't like John the Baptist calling him out on being a sinner. So uh, John the Baptist then finds himself arrested. Herod says, well, Herod really wanted to kill him, but the people like John the Baptist, maybe I shouldn't kill John the Baptist. I'm just going to go get him, get him out of the wilderness and put him in jail and tell him to stop telling everybody what an evil adulterer I am. So he does that. John the Baptist is in jail. And it marks a particular turning point in Jesus' ministry because now in the region of Judea, the heat's been turned up. Right? The authorities are out to suppress this movement that's going on. John the Baptist has started that Jesus is clearly in continuation with. He's been baptized by him. He submitted himself to that. They're on the same trajectory. That's been made very clear to us. And so now with the heat turned up and the temperature changed, this is the catalyst or the occasion for Jesus to move and set up shop somewhere else. And so he does. He goes to the region of Galilee. He doesn't just go anywhere in the region of Galilee. His home's in Galilee. He's from Nazareth, but he doesn't end up there. We'll know why later. He ends up in a town called Capernaum. So this becomes an important town. You see it here. Let's explore it just a little bit. Verse 13. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So things that you need to know here about Capernaum first, here it is. It's in the, the region of Zebulun and, and Naphtali. Those are regions that are, that are described by their, who they're allotted to in terms of the tribe of Israel. This is the tribal portion that they, they belong to in that region. You can go look at it on an old map, and you'll see them right there around the Sea of Galilee. And that's the next thing that you need to catch about Capernaum, because what makes Capernaum a particular place of interest is that it is right here by the Sea of Galilee. Zebulun and Naphtali, well, those are Israelite tribes. But understand, by this point in time, this territory is very well inhabited by Gentile people. And the Gentile people inhabit this place because of the Sea of Galilee. By this point in time, the Sea of Galilee is a well-known honey hole for commercial fishermen. And so, shocker, the people wanted to move there. That doesn't make sense to you. I can't help you. Because if you told me that the Sea of Galilee had particularly good fishing, I would move there too. I'd be very interested in that. Turns out fishermen want to live where the fishing's good, especially if you do that for a living. And so all these Gentile fishermen kind of flock to places around the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum being one of those places, Capernaum being a prominent fishing village right here on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. Now, completely irrespective of how interested you are in ancient fishing villages, this is a big deal. It's a really big deal. Matthew wants you to know it's a big deal. And so Matthew does what he typically does. We've seen him do over and over again when he wants to prove to you that something's a big deal. Here comes the Old Testament. Let me get my Old Testament out. Here he goes. Why, Matthew, why would Jesus, like tell Matthew, can you explain to me why Jesus moved to Capernaum, verse 14, so that, here's why he did it, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Well, there you go. You, I know you're just floored right now and you're saying, this is great, Thomas. It's not every week. It's not every week we see such a clear connection between the New Testament and the Old Testament. It's not every week you get just such a a screaming beacon of this is why this is here and this is why Jesus is doing what he's doing. And that's super tongue-in-cheek. Because if you've been here at all, 
managed to be here at all any of the last eight Sundays, you know that you get to see this every time you open your Bible, at least in the first four chapters of Matthew, and it's not going anywhere. Matthew is dead set on helping you connect the dots between what's going on here and what the prophets foretold. And so Matthew, what do you want me to see here? What dots do you want me to connect? Why have you told me that? Well, he's told you this because this is completely not what you would expect. It's not what you would expect because of verse 15. This is Galilee of the Gentiles. This is the region inhabited by the Gentiles. That was true when the prophet Isaiah wrote it way back in Isaiah chapter 9, 700 years before now. And it's true, even truer right now. As Matthew writes it, it's eaten up by Gentiles. They're all over the place. They flocked to places like Capernaum so they can fish. And you say, well, why is that so shocking? What's the deal? Because Matthew has went way out of his way to convince you Jesus is the king of the Jews. He's been born the king of the Jews. These are supposed to be these Israelite territories. I thought Jesus was the son of David. I thought Jesus was the son of Abraham. Isn't he here to sit on David's throne and rule the Jewish people forever and ever? Isn't he here as the offspring of David, the, the, the most Jewish Jew who ever lived in the history of the world? Like, isn't that, isn't that who Jesus is? And he's set up shop among the Gentiles? This is going to become his home base. This is home for Jesus during his Galilean ministry. Capernaum, a place overrun with Gentiles. And Matthew doesn't just want you to see that. He doesn't just want you to be aware of that. He doesn't just want you to be aware of the fact that God is continuing to do these things we don't see coming and don't anticipate and don't expect that subvert the way that we would do this if we were doing it. But he also wants you to see, you should have seen it coming. Like the prophets told you it was coming. Because what he's just done here is quote for us Isaiah chapter 9, the first two verses. You're familiar with Isaiah chapter 9 because I'm going to skip down to verses 6 and 7 and read those to you. And you tell me if you think you know who this is talking about. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, you tell me, just tell me, do you guys think, do you have an opinion about who you think that is? Well, Matthew does. Like, Matthew wants you to see this is Jesus. Like, this isn't, Jesus is not just come as the son of David. He's the divine Davidic son. He's the one coming to sit on the throne forever. He's already told you, even in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, this is Emmanuel, God with us. You remember, he connected those dots in Matthew chapter 1. So he's trying to get you to see you should have seen this coming. Like, yes, it's countercultural. Yes, it blows all the ways you would do this out of the water. But the prophets have foretold this. You should have seen it coming. Described right here in these verses and described back in Isaiah, it's a place of, it's a place of darkness. It's the region of the shadow of death. What's, what's going on? What makes this so surprising? Well, 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 29 tells us that when the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser came, it's a hard name to forget, when he came in to take the people out of the land, the first place he went, Galilee, Zebulun, Naphtali, first exiles extracted in that first Assyrian exile when the northern kingdom is hauled off 
the region of particular darkness. It's a region that's felt particular shame because of what has went on there. They've been depopulated. They've been disgraced and defaced. Land of darkness. Shadow of death. Bad, bad, bad memories for the people of Israel. But the light has dawned. Because this one who's coming, this son who's going to be born, the divine Davidic son to come and sit and rule on the throne of David forever and ever, the king born, the true legitimate king of the Jews, he's come to their place. They're the first ones hauled off, and now they're the first ones to get to experience Jesus' public ministry. What a turn of events. This is what it means that this dwelling, these people dwelling in darkness have now seen a great light. These dwelling in the region of shadow death, on them a light has dawned. And Matthew's saying, Isaiah saw it 700 years ago. Does that make sense to you? You wouldn't have seen it coming. But the prophets told it, and here it is. Jesus has come to do what the prophets have foretold that he would do. If you can't see that any other way, look at the place. Consider the place. So as we get started and we have the scene set, as we start to creep our way into Jesus' public ministry, just consider that the place. It's important to know that's what's going on and this is where all this is going down. And it's been foretold by the prophets and Matthew doesn't want you to miss that. That's his place. All right, let's consider now the king's preaching. Make an abrupt transition to the king's preaching in verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach. I wonder what he preached. Saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, um, that should sound familiar to you. Hope it does. I told you it would. This is verbatim. I'm talking about exactly. I'm talking about to the T how Matthew recorded the summary of John the Baptist's preaching ministry in chapter 3, verse 2. John the Baptist came saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now here we got Jesus, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, again, it's just a summary. So don't get, don't get carried away here thinking Jesus is plagiarizing sermons or anything like that. We're going to spend the next literal couple of months exposing like that didn't happen. Ain't nobody ever preached like Jesus preached. Jesus is going to blow that out of the water over the course of the next couple of months. But So don't accuse him of plagiarizing, but do accuse him of being in continuation. It, it, it shouldn't surprise you that there's a large amount of continuity here because, again, John the Baptist was not just any old preacher. He was the promised preacher. Like, he was the preacher that the prophet said was coming to prepare the way of the Lord. And so, what do you know? Here comes the Lord. He's going to pick up and follow preaching a very, very similar message. I'm really grateful that that's recorded right here for us at this point in time. And we'll get lots of opportunities to see exactly what Jesus is preaching. But this summary is really helpful. So since it's so helpful, and since I think it's such a big deal, since Matthew thinks it's such a big deal that he would go out of his way to record it, let's make sure we understand it. Let's just circle back one more time. It's very simple. It's a very, very simple summary of a message because all it is is one command and a reason for heeding that command. That's all he's giving you. The command right here is repent. Repent. Literally, one command, repentance. What, what is that? What are we talking about? Again, if you weren't here or if you missed it or if you slept through it, what we're talking about when we talk about repentance, people will say things like change your mind, have a change of mind, to do an about face, to turn away. Oh, that's really good and true and helpful. The thing I'm trying to make sure that we get, that we emphasize is that 
repentance really is like the flip side of faith. It's this internal reality. Something's changed in me internally. Like my desires and my disposition toward my sin have changed. And then that comes with an external manifestation. So it's an internal reality, something I experience as a gift of the Lord that leads me then to act differently, to respond to my sin differently. If you'll remember the whole Ruth Chris analogy, it's the desire you have to sit your tray down that enables you to pick up the good food, right? That's what we're talking about when we talk about repentance. And why I'm trying to highlight that is that that keeps me and it keeps us from saying things like, we just got to do better. We just got to do more faithful. We just got to, like, I can't give you a 12-step plan. There's no 12-step plan. Repentance starts with a divine act of God giving you a new heart. Like, that's what's got to happen. So if I were to say something to you like, hey, uh, do better and stop sinning, which, by the way, I'm saying that, like, stop, like, Quit your sin. Like, I want you to hear that. But if I didn't go on to say and hate it, that wouldn't be repentance. I think Romans 8 makes this really clear for us. Romans 8, verse 13. uh, For if uh, you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's a really good verse to help us think about repentance. So what's just happened is I went from wherever I'm at, comfortable in what I'm doing in my flesh. Romans 8, 13 has now shifted that, and I've got like a a decided attitude of, I hate this. Again, I don't want what I used to want in my flesh. And not only that, but I'm going to lean on the Holy Spirit, whom I've been given, to help me put to death the deeds of the body so that I don't keep living like that. Because I hate it, and my actions need to reflect that. And over time, they will reflect that more. That's how sanctification works. So that's what I want you to catch about repentance. But it's really important that we see that and and that we get that, that this is a divine act of God, that he is actually changing our hearts so that we hate what we used to love. And again, Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of this. Like Jesus is the one who unlocks this for us because the prophets have promised it. The prophets have said things like, he's going to give you a new heart. He's going to remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. He's going to remove your spirit and give you his Holy Spirit. We need that to happen. And Jesus comes, and this is what he's talking about when he's saying things like being born again. This is what Paul's talking about when he's saying things like you must become a new creation. The Bible is very, very clear. This is what it looks like to be one of God's people. The Lord has to change us. We have to be saved by the wrath from the wrath of God, by God himself. And that's what Jesus has come to do. And he does that by buying us this gift of redemption and purchasing for us the gift of the Holy Spirit whom's poured out on us so that we can live in repentance. That desperately needs to happen to us in order for us to be saved because when Jesus preaches the gospel, he says repent. We have to repent. There is no there's no salvation apart from repentance. You cannot be a disciple unless you repent. This is the basic entry-level command. Like, there's, there's nothing else that you need to catch besides repentance is a ground-level reality for me. And if I don't have repentance, I don't have anything, which makes this deal pretty urgent. Like, what do I do with Jesus? Well, it's got to get pretty urgent. So it would be not helpful for you to say, I'm going to put this off till tomorrow. No, it's, ur- it's urgent. Why is it urgent? Jesus says it's urgent. Jesus says repent for or because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Like the time's now. It's right now. It's here. It's like right here. You don't, when you're talking to Jesus, you don't have to go off and look and see, okay, how do I see God ruling and reigning? 
Like, you're seeing it in Jesus. That's why he can say the kingdom of heaven is at hand, because he is the kingdom of heaven. He's come to usher in the kingdom of heaven. The manifest rule and reign of God is present in Jesus, and if it isn't present in Jesus, it ain't present anywhere. When you're talking about Jesus, you're talking about the manifest rule and reign of God. What God is doing has broken into the midst of a sinful humanity, and we are seeing it on display in Jesus. So he's able to say with great confidence, hey, the time is now. The time is right now. It's at hand. It's at hand right now. It's here. It's right here. And that's urgent. Like, you need to do something about that. I'm going to say this. I want you to hear me with a decent level of charity. Um, I'm in this for the long haul. We've got time. So I'm, I don't think faithfulness demands that right now from this pulpit this morning, I say everything that needs to get said. I don't think I had to say it today. I don't think I got to say it by the end of the month. I don't think I got to say it this year. We've got time. Everything that we need to do as a church to make this place healthier and all that stuff, like we don't have to do it today. We ain't got to do it tomorrow. We ain't going to do it by the end of the year. We've got time. There's lots and lots of things that we have time on. Over time, we'll get to teach more of the Bible. We'll get into deeper doctrine. It'll be great. We've got time. If the Lord tarries, we've got time. If he doesn't tarry, it won't really matter, will it? But there's some things we ain't got no time for. Like, there's some things that are urgent. And the thing that's, like, really urgent for you this morning that you, like, should have figured out by the time you walk out of this room this morning is am I in line with the kingdom of heaven or not? Like, the king of the kingdom of heaven has come and has said, repent, because the time's right now. Like, the time for you to repent is right now. The time for you to get on board with what I'm doing in the world is right now. Like, the king has said that. And so I'm saying that to you. And so if you leave here this morning and you're not following the king, you're not part of his kingdom, I will pity you, but I will not feel sorry for you. The blood will be on your hands because... I'm saying this is urgent because Jesus is saying this is urgent because John the Baptist said this is urgent and the disciples are going to say it's urgent. Like, do not do the really foolish thing of saying, I'll get right tomorrow. We'll wait for tomorrow. There'll be another chance. How foolish are you? If you're hearing anything I'm saying this morning, you know that I believe repentance is a gift. You know I believe the Lord's got to do something in your life. And so as you sit here right now, if you're really comfortable with the fact that the Lord hasn't changed you and that you don't hate your sin and that you don't have new desires, what makes you think you're going to wake up tomorrow and feel different? You're not. You in your flesh are not going to wake up tomorrow and say, you know what, I'm ready to be done with my sin. Like, if you don't feel that right now, I would be very uncomfortable. And I would want to do something about that. And guess what? You can do something about that. Because Jesus, who's preaching repent for the kingdom of heaven, is at hand, is going to preach in a couple of chapters. Ask and you'll be given it. Knock and it'll be open. Seek it and you'll find it. If you want it, it's yours. So as you sit here right now, if you say, I want that, I want to be done with my sin, I want a relationship with Jesus, I want this Jesus guy who's come to bring in the kingdom of heaven to include me in his kingdom, he will. But if you say, I'll put that off or I'll wait, I don't really need to have peace with that. Beware. Because Jesus is saying this is urgent. And John the Baptist is saying this is urgent. And his disciples are going to say it's urgent. And I'm just trying to follow in line with these other preachers. And I'm just going to tell you, it's urgent. You should probably do something about it. I think it's really helpful that this is, is placed here for us. Because when you hear John the Baptist say stuff like that, you're probably like, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, he's a guy who lives out in the woods, and he's a guy who wears his big camel's hair, and he's got his leather belt on, and he's come in the spirit and power of Elijah, and he eats, sometimes he doesn't eat, but when he does eat, he eats locusts, and he eats wild honey. I mean, yeah, that guy's a renegade. 
Like that, I bet that it doesn't, sure that guy could shuck the corn. I bet he's stepping on people's toes every time he opens his mouth. I bet he's like, yeah, that's John the Baptist. Sure, but not Jesus. John the Baptist preached repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus comes to preaching repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist was the forerunner. If you thought John the Baptist could preach, you ain't seen nothing yet. This is, this is the greatest preacher who ever lived, who's now started his preaching ministry. You ain't seen nothing yet. But we'll get to spend weeks and months. You don't have to take my word for it. You don't have to take Matthew's word for it. We're going to get to see Jesus preach. Over the, next, over the course of the next two months, all we're going to do is watch Jesus preach. It's going to be a fantastic time. But just be forewarned. The summary of Jesus' preaching, the bottom line is repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's his, that's his preaching. So as we continue to set the scene, we've considered his place. We've considered his preaching. Let's consider his people. Jesus calls a few disciples here. Verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets, and they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two older, two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending the nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So here come uh, a, little, a little sampling of the disciples, a little small group here, the disciples, some of the most uh, immediate disciples to Jesus, the intimate disciples with Jesus. Here they are right here. Their call is included in the Gospel of Matthew right here for us. And a few things that we should just uh, observe about that. Let's, let's look back through it. What are we seeing here? Well, we're by the Sea of Galilee, and here comes Jesus to these brothers, Peter, who's called, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. So Simon's his name. You know him as Peter because Jesus is going to dub him Peter. And when Jesus gives you a nickname, it tends to stick, right? So that's what happens to Peter. So you know him as Peter. So we got Peter and we got Andrew. And they are literally, they're literally fishing. That's how I know they're good guys. They're fishermen. Of course they're good dudes, right? Sure, they'd follow Jesus. Yeah. So anyways, they're fishing. They're casting their net into the sea. And in the middle of the act of fishing, Jesus comes to them and says, hey, uh, follow me. Follow me and I'll make you. Fishers of men. And what do they do? Immediately they do it. They leave their nets and they go. They follow. Now you're saying that's strange. Like, have they, have they ever, like, interacted with, like, Jesus before? Like, that's really strange. Why would you do that? And I think the answer is yes. So if you woke up this morning, you put your Bible scholar hat on, and you were just really thinking about this thing. Or if you've just been going through our Gospel of John reading plan, and you read this pretty recently, you're going to remember from John chapter 1. There seems to be a very different interaction between Jesus and the disciples. And we know that there's two totally different interactions because in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35, John the Baptist is part of these disciples meeting Jesus. And Matthew's clearly said he's already in jail. So these are two separate encounters. There's two different deals. Jesus has met and encountered these disciples before. There's a very different encounter here where in that, at that point in time, they're encountering Jesus. They're asking questions. They're trying to figure out what's going on. They're following him around. But now Jesus said, let's go. He's been turned up. He's about to get into the thick of his public ministry. Like, this is the authoritative call, come follow me. And when I say come follow me, I mean, like, pack your bags and follow me. Like, it's time to go. Different interaction, different call. But that explains why these people aren't asking questions like, I'm sorry, who are you? 
They know who he is. They're familiar. They've been aware of his ministry. You're going to see, again, if you've read John, you're going to see in Matthew. Matthew doesn't parallel all the same movements that John does because Matthew's picking up in a different place after the heat's already been turned up a little bit and we're getting into the thick of this thing in Galilee a little bit. And so that's what's going on. But Jesus has come. Andrew, Peter, hey, let's go. All right? We're going. Immediately. They leave your nets and follow him. More on that in a moment. But then we come down the road, just a little piece, and pretty close at hand. Here we've got uh, James and John, who are the sons of Zebedee. It doesn't shock us or shouldn't surprise us very much that they're pretty close at hand because Luke chapter 5, verse 10 tells us that all these boys are in business together. They're, fish, they're partners in business. Presumably, it's Zebedee's fishing business. Presumably, it's a pretty good fishing business because they got a boat. I don't know what you know about boats, but in the first century, like a boat wasn't exactly that easy to come by. Kind of rare. But these guys got a boat. So they're running a fishing operation. They're all part of the same fishing operation. They're in this thing together. And so as Jesus leaves from calling Simon and Andrew, well, here we've got James and John. And so the call to them comes as they're sitting in their boat and they're mending their nets. They're doing their post-fishing chores. And so they're, they're wrapping that up. They're with their dad. And Jesus calls them and immediately they leave what they're doing and they followed him. What are we supposed to get from this? As we think about the king's people, like being a disciple. What do we learn about being a disciple, being one of the king's people from this? Well, we learn a few things. The first thing that we're going to have to pay attention to is that disciples are called by Christ. You'll notice that in the text. He said to them. He called them. The disadvantage that me and you have as we think about discipleship is the only framework we think about when we think about discipleship is the one Jesus was using. But we would do well to note Jesus didn't invent discipleship. Discipleship was, was already a thing. Jesus takes it, modifies it, makes it fit the purposes of his ministry. But at this point in time, like this day right here, right now, Jewish rabbis uh, or teachers, they had disciples. They had guys who would actually come to them and say, can I follow you around and learn from you? Can I follow you around and learn from you? And this is how people are kind of brought up in the Jewish rabbinic tradition. Through asking a, a, guy, a rabbi, can I follow you? And the rabbi will say, yeah, I'll take you as my student. I'll take you as my student. I'll take you as my student. There you go. Jesus, don't do that. It's not, hey, can I, come and, can I come and learn? Can I come and learn? Can I come and learn? No, Jesus comes and says, come and be taught. I want you. Like, you come and I'm going to teach you. I'm going to disciple you. And I'm taking the initiative. In that. And that's going to end up being really important because Jesus will say things like in John 15, hey, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And what that's intended to do for the disciples is to be a great, great comfort for them. And it's me and you aren't very different than these disciples, by the way. Like, it's supposed to be a great, great comfort for us. The, the bottom line is, if, it, if, if it's not about me getting myself into this thing, surely Jesus can keep me. Surely, the Apostle Paul, when he says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, like surely that, that involves Jesus taking initiative in my life. And thankfully, he has in my life, just like he has with these disciples. To be a disciple is to be called by Christ. We've got to hear the call of Christ, and we've got to respond to that call of Christ. More on that in a moment. But what else can we learn? What else can we see here as we think about these disciples, what it means to be a disciple? Well, being a disciple is to be active. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That's the pledge given to these who would be disciples. If you follow me, 
It is not this ivory tower discipleship. It's not me and you go when we go off into the hills and we sit around and I teach you things so that you have intellectual head knowledge. No, it's you come and follow me. And as you come and follow me, what I'm going to show you is how you go about taking this good news of the kingdom to a world that needs it. Like this is engaged discipleship. This is active discipleship. So the thing that I would just have to ask you even at this point in time is like, is that how you view discipleship? Brothers and sisters, our discipleship's not different than, than their discipleship. Like being a disciple of Jesus now isn't a whole lot different than being a disciple of Jesus then. So if Jesus called them to fish for men, like are you fishing for men? Are you engaged in taking this good news to the ends of the earth? I've said it before, I'll, I'll say it again. We in the American church in the last hundred years have done an atrocious job of making disciples. We've done a, like, a really, really bad job. And so you could be here this morning and th- there's whole like, lines of things that the Bible's called us to do that we just really struggle to, to find our way through. And evangelism is one of those things. Sharing the gospel is one of those things for, for us in the American church. I've got a friend, a really good friend. Is, he shared his testimony with me uh, and he's a big evangelism guy. He came to know the Lord and immediately starts telling people about Jesus. And he's not in church or anything. Like he's just coming to know the Lord. He's barely starting to put some of this together and is out and sharing the gospel. And he told me, he said, you know, I was really glad that I learned to do that from the Bible before I realized that Christians didn't do that type of thing, right? And that's, that's as sad as it is funny and true, right? We oftentimes, like, that's really backwards. But the fact of the matter is that couldn't be any more backwards. Like, to be a Christian but not be fishing for men is contra the purpose of Jesus' discipleship. Because Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, like what that's going to do for you is actually put you in the world, actively engaging and actively seeking to fish for men, actively taking the good news of the kingdom of God to the world. That's what discipleship looks like for Jesus. So again, we've got to ask that question, are we fishing for men or not? And look, I'm your pastor. I'm not ignorant of the fact that we're going to struggle with a lot of the same sins that the American church at at large does. A lot of us probably are not doing that as well as we should. The question we have to ask as a church is, are we doing that out of disobedience or are we doing that out of a lack of confidence in what we believe? And if you are one of the people who's doing that out of a lack of confidence in, in what you believe, well, I have really good news for you about the good news. Like, we're doing everything we can as a church right now to try to get clarity on that and to try to help you grow in confidence in that. Uh, what do I mean? Well, we've got these black books in the back that I've already plugged one time in service. They're back there. What is the gospel? You pick up a copy of that book. Some of our folks already have. They've told me they've enjoyed it. I had not had a negative comment about it yet. But you pick you up one of those books. You can read it. You can read it in like two weeks. They're on the table. They're in the back bookshelf. You take them, you take them home, you read it, we run out, I'll buy more. No problem. If that's not convenient enough for you, there is an audiobook. You can listen to the thing. Probably take like three hours, right? So you you go and you do that. If you're like, well, you know, if it would only be a little more convenient, well, good, I got good news for you. There's a cheat sheet on the back. There's some laminated cheat sheets I made of the gospel. What is the gospel? I distilled the content of that book down into a piece of landscape paper. I had to get 11-point font, so I cheated a little bit. But it's on a piece of paper. You take that. You read that. You study that. There's a diagram on the back. And you say, oh, well, I just need to discuss it with somebody. If I could only discuss it with somebody, we'd be off to a good start. Okay, well, I've got some guys that I'm meeting with to try to do that with on Friday mornings. And then we've got a group of guys who are actually doing that on uh, Monday night. I just told you about that. That's what our men's Bible study is doing on Monday night. You can hop in right now. They'll get you caught up in no time. That's not a problem. I spent some time on Wednesday night talking with our women. How can we get a ladies group going on that? And that's we're talking about starting that pretty soon. So that's on the way for you as well. 
None of that fits your schedule. Great, grab a book, grab another book, hand it to somebody and say, read this. When you get done with chapter one, call me. We're gonna talk about it. We're gonna go out to lunch. We're gonna talk about it. Next Sunday after church, me and you, we're gonna go out to church. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna go out to lunch and we're gonna talk about it. And that's all I've got. That's the convenience I can make it. But if you hear all those options and you, you're saying, I really struggle to share the gospel and like none of that sounds appealing to me. I think we've got our answer. You're not sharing the gospel out of disobedience. You're not sharing the gospel because you don't want to share the gospel. If you struggle with that, that's one thing. If you struggle with that and you're okay with struggling with that, that's a very different thing. I, have, I can't help you, except maybe aside from telling you that that's unrepentant sin, and the Bible tells us really clearly that unrepentant sin is a super good sign that you were never a disciple in the first place. So again, beware, heed that. That is really urgent. To be a disciple is to be an active disciple. Discipleship involves fishing for men. So are you fishing for men? Disciples, what else do they do? Disciples also put everything on the table. Immediately they left their nets, followed him. They're, they're fishing. It's their job. They left their nets. They followed him. Verse 22, immediately, James and John, they left the boat and their dad and followed him. I just want you to see this with, with Jesus. Like, he's not asking them to make like little small lifestyle tweaks, like do these things different. No, he's asking for their lives. Right? I want your life. Why, as we continue in Matthew, we'll get there in a while, why is it that the rich young ruler can't be a disciple? Because he cares about other things more than Jesus. Why is it that Peter and Andrew and James and John can be disciples? They don't care about anything more than Jesus. They won't let anything get in the way of Jesus. It ain't about their nets. It ain't about their boats. It ain't about their livelihood. It ain't about their dad. If it gets in the way of Jesus, I'm going to take Jesus over that. Brothers and sisters, we're going to learn really consistently as we explore the gospel of Matthew over the, the months ahead, like, what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is that Jesus would be our greatest treasure. Like we value Jesus more than anything and we want to be faithful to Jesus more than we want to breathe again. Like given the choice, I would rather be faithful to Jesus than do anything else. That's what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. That's the commitment we're making when we say, I want to follow Christ. If you want me to word it differently for you, I'll word it differently for you. It means we've got everything on the table. Brothers and sisters, is everything on the table in your life? Or are there like little places in your life you're trying to draw little fine lines around and say, Jesus, you're not welcome here. Like, Jesus, I want you to save me. And I want you to be the Lord over like 82% of my life. But this other 18%, like I kind of want to do what I, I want to do. I want you to just like leave me alone on these few issues that are kind of my pet sins. That I, I really want these. Like I... I know, you'll, I know you know my heart, and I'm doing the best I can. And yep, that's the problem. Jesus knows your heart. And he knows where he's Lord of it and where he's not. And he's either the Lord, or, Lord of it or he's not. This is not a gray area issue. Is your life submitted to the lordship of Jesus, or is it not? Because the disciples are. Everything is on the table. Everything here is on the table. Jesus is asking for their lives, and they give it. So have you just fully submitted your life to Jesus? Is he the Lord of your life? Or are you telling him there's places that you just can't come? There's a limit to my obedience. No limit to the disciples' obedience. You want me to put my nets down? Okay. You want me to put my boat down, leave my boat? Okay. You want me to leave my dad? You want me to walk out on my family business? You say so. Let's go. That's discipleship. Everything on 
the table. Finally, what do we see in these disciples? These disciples respond to Jesus' call with urgency. Probably not hard for you to see where I'm getting that in the text. Verse 20, immediately. Verse 22, immediately. So Jesus, I've tried to draw out for you this morning, is saying this is pretty urgent. It's an urgent deal. And so his disciples respond with that level of urgency. They're ready to go. They respond to Jesus' call with urgency. Jesus is saying, hey, again, remember, the time is now. And disciples say, okay. The time is right now. Okay. It's urgent. So they respond to the urgent call with a level of urgency. What about you? Maybe even some of you this morning, as you think through what's going on in your life, how this applies to this text, how this applies to what we've seen in verse 17, maybe you hear Jesus calling you. Not audibly. I don't hear Jesus audibly. I often hear him much louder than that, though. And it's very clear to me, obedience looks like this. My next step to be faithful is this. And you've got a choice right now. Maybe you're saying, I don't know if I've got peace with God. Maybe you're saying, I've got sin in my life that I'm not dealing with. I'm just kind of letting it hang around. Jesus is saying now, urgent, now. Let's do it right now. Let's handle it right now. And so if you want to know if Jesus is really Lord of your life or not, it's a great litmus test. Are you saying okay or are you saying let's wait? Just give me a minute. Like, I'll do it next week. I'll do it when the finances get better. I'll do it when I'm not so busy. Great indication who's running your life. I don't know if you know this about me. Many of you probably don't. I love a good cold shower. I've been taking cold showers for years. I understand that's like a fad right now. It's like a thing. Okay. But I've been doing it for years, so I've got a lot of experience here. And I've learned something over the course of my time taking cold showers. The most efficient and effective way to take a cold shower is to get in the shower before you cut the water on. Okay? Because if you cut the water on and it's cold before you get in the shower, you ain't getting in the shower real quick. Okay? You're going to spend about if you're you're going to spend about six minutes standing outside the shower to take a two minute cold shower trying to talk yourself into getting in the shower. And over the course of that six minutes, your natural desire not to freeze is going to do like lots of things. Like you're going to be like, okay, one, two, three. Now that's going to happen like ten times, fifteen times. And so what you're learning over the course of that six minute period for you to get in the shower to take a two minute cold shower is my willpower really isn't in control. Actually, my desire, my fleshly desire not to freeze is in control for that six minutes, okay? The very same thing's going on when we're talking about responding to Jesus. If Jesus is saying things like now, which he is, verse 17, and you're saying things like wait, guess who's in control? Guess who's Lord? Not Jesus. You're the one driving the ship, not Jesus. So the question really comes down to when you're thinking about your life, you're thinking about how you relate to Jesus. Maybe I can summarize the whole thing like this. The question you've got to ask is when you're thinking about discipleship, you're thinking, I'm a disciple of Christ. Am I or am I not? You've got to ask, am I driving the thing and Jesus is my co-pilot who I'm getting suggestions from? Or have I handed Jesus the keys and I'm actually really happy about that? One or the other. It ain't both. Somebody's driving, somebody's riding. If you're driving, you're not in a good place. If Jesus is driving, you ought to be pretty happy about that. If Jesus really is your Lord, you're going to be really happy about that. The disciples, they hear, respond. They respond to Jesus' urgent message with urgency. Those are the king's people. Matthew 4 ends kind of abruptly this morning. There's a few of our summary of 
what's going to go on throughout the rest of Jesus' Galilean ministry. Verse 23, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing uh, every disease and every affliction among the people so that his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And we will analyze uh, each of those elements as we come across them in in the weeks ahead. But what you've got to see this morning, what Matthew wants you to know about what's about to go down here in Jesus's ministry is that Jesus is teaching, Jesus is preaching, Jesus is healing all different types of sicknesses and diseases, and Jesus is drawing great crowds. And Jesus is drawing crowds who we're going to come to find out are coming for very different reasons. Not all of them are following him. But you're about to see that happen over the course of the chapters to come and in the weeks and months ahead. That's what you're going to see. And we're going to analyze all those elements as, as we get there. So just be uh, aware that what we're seeing this morning is Matthew's proclamation that the king has come. And he's not only come, but he set a very clear trajectory for how he will establish and manifest his kingdom. What he's really given you, what we've really spent all of our time considering this morning is is a thesis. It's a fancy word. But I have to read a lot of books these days. And I love a book that has a good thesis. A good, nice, clear, somewhere at the beginning thesis. Like, you tell me what you're about to argue for. This is what you're about to get into. I'm about to give you a bunch of evidence that supports this. This is my claim. And Matthew's just done that. This morning, I'm about to give you a bunch of evidence that shows Jesus was teaching, Jesus was preaching, Jesus was healing, and a lot of people were coming around to see what was going on with Jesus. This is what Jesus was preaching. This is how people were responding to Jesus. This is what it looked like to be a disciple. He's about to teach us about discipleship, and you want about discipleship? There it is. He's given us a thesis, and I'm really, really grateful for that thesis. Matthew's given us this introduction where he's emphasized the Old Testament. He's shown us who Jesus is, and now he's got this thesis of his Galilean ministry. Here's what I'm about to show you. I'm about to show you the king teaching and preaching and healing and drawing people to himself and making disciples. And this morning's text, it sets the scene. It sets the scene for and marks the beginning of his public ministry. The introduction's over. Jesus is on the scene. And next week, chapter 5, we will begin in fully turning and focusing our attention on the king's proclamation of the kingdom of heaven. It's going to be a great time. We'll continue this sacred conversation next week, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord, uh, we thank you that you are uh, the king who's come to usher in the kingdom. And in Jesus, we see the kingdom uh, manifestly ruling and reigning even in the midst of a sinful people. Lord, we know that that's true even still this morning. We thank you that you've called us here. You've called us to gather here as, a, as an embassy, as a little outpost of the kingdom of heaven. So Lord, I pray that those of us in this room who've committed our lives to you, that we would be faithful to be lights uh, in a dark world, that we'd be faithful to actually engage the world and fish for men. Lord, would you produce that in us because you so clearly want that for us. So Lord, help us. Uh, If there are those here this morning who've never responded to Jesus' call on on their lives to enter into the kingdom and enter into their rest and to take Jesus' yoke upon them, Lord, I pray. This morning, you would not give them peace, but that you would remind them, even in the depths of their soul right now, that there's something very urgent going on. So, Lord, uh, 
you call. We ask that you'd make your people faithful. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're going to have a brief hymn of response. I'll be on the